Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Kyle Armstrong, a writer and director whose first feature, Until First Light, was a haunting experimental drama about a family dealing with a profound loss. His new film, Hands That Bind, stars Paul Sparks, Susan Kent, Bruce Dern, and Will Oldham, among others, in the story of a farmhand whose plans to take on the ownership of the land where he works are complicated by the return of his boss's son, as well as some other curious happenings. It's in theaters and available on digital in the US and Canada right now, and you should check it out. Kyle picked Lodge Kerrigan's Keen, an excruciating 2004 drama starring Damian Lewis as a man in a profound state of crisis who may or may not be grieving the abduction of a daughter months earlier. Things seem to look up when he meets a single mother and her young daughter, played by Amy Ryan and Abigail Breslin, who could offer him a chance at stability until it becomes clear that something else is going on. Exactly what that is, though, is buried deep inside Keen, both the film and the man, and the search for the truth is what makes the film so unforgettable. This is someone else's movie. Yeah, I mean, Keen is one of those uh, films that's just this little undiscovered gem or this this small gem that had... Um, you know, a, a minimal maybe public life, but I think it's a really special film. And I love, I love films that feel very handmade. I love films that seem like they were um, kind of crafted by hand and made with care and love. And this is one of those uh, really interesting films to me because it stylistically, it's really not the sort of style that I'm typically drawn to, but I, I see it as a perfect example of, of how compelling a character and story um can be and that's in some ways what you that's that's the most uh maybe it's the most important thing when it comes to making film i mean some people would definitely argue that's it right character and story yeah Yeah. well and depriving us of anything but the moment i think is the is the real hook to kerrigan like we he Mm -hmm. he introduces all of his characters after their crisis right like in the new crisis Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. uh, and both Keen and Clean Shaven have that that really uncomfortable immediate power where the camera just doesn't leave someone's face for long, long, long takes. And after a while, you just stop seeing the acting. If that makes any sense, right? Like I'd yeah, seen Peter I... Green in some films before. I saw Clean Shaven, and I had seen Band of Brothers, so I knew who Damien Lewis was. But right. watching them in his films is a different experience. Yeah, you're so right. It's there's not an establishing shot in the entire film. There, there's not a there's not a scene that goes by that isn't just a single shot. It's absolutely fascinating to watch, and and sort of a horrifying prospect, I think, as a filmmaker, to know that you're going to set out to do that because it's such a massive risk. Um, you know, most editors would would probably uh, walk away from the job if you told them that that's what you're going to hand them the footage. <laughs> Or they might say, "Hey, this is the easiest thing I'm ever going to have to cut." Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, it's the, the camera never leaves the faces. It's there. It's immediate. It's always. It follows him wherever he goes. And and like you say, it starts. You know, in the first ten seconds, what the what the premise is, mm-hmm. what the conceit is, and and you follow him through that entire story, knowing that knowing knowing, but never quite knowing exactly if it's true or not. Yeah, and a massive spoiler film. Obviously, this is this is one of those films that truly, on like a second viewing of this film, doesn't uh, necessarily carry the same weight for me. So I find that also really interesting with this film too. Is it's 
you know, I would, I never want to tell uh, listeners to not listen to the podcast, but please consider watching the film. <laughs> Pressing pause, go run, find the movie, watch it, and come back and immediately finish this podcast. Yeah, I, I will That's put a warning in the opening, uh, in the intro, just because it feels sadistic to to throw this at people who haven't experienced it. Mm-hmm. And I also ran in, it's, it's weird, I ran into the same problem trying to get people to see it at the time, because it did get a tiny theatrical release. Um, it should have had more traction, but again, it's a small independent film where if you tell people, oh, it's this really intense study of misery, people don't want to go see it. <laughs> So I was trying to like, do you say it's about a guy looking for something? Is it about someone trying to, I mean, ultimately, and again, this is for people who've already seen it. Uh, it's about someone re-experiencing, forcing himself, presumably to re-experience this trauma, the worst thing that can possibly happen to someone. And he just keeps trying to figure it out, revisiting it step by step. And it's this, uh, the way I took it was, it's probably the most sympathetic portrait of obsessive compulsive disorder I've ever seen where Mm, these mm. tendencies were probably already there. And again, we have no idea. We don't have any information about who this guy was before. So it's, it's reverse memento, right? Like you, you're plunged Mm. into this world and all the things you need to piece together. The story are there except for the hole at the center of it, because he's been hollowed out by this loss and it, it works emotionally. It works narratively. It's how it has to be. But Damien Lewis as an actor is, and we know even more now, like he's incredibly good at complex, charismatic, mysterious people. And he just shuts it all Mm -hmm. off here and is just shambling, dead-eyed, empty. And it's so, it's so powerful. I think it's actually more powerful now that we know who this guy is than when he was an Mm -hmm. unknown, if that makes any sense. Mm, Yeah, I I don't object there. I mean... His performance is really, um, it's very, very strong in a film that um, where Kerrigan, Kerrigan's never, never style over uh, substance. It's mm. always, it's always the form over uh, the function over form. And, and that's something I really admire in a filmmaker. Again, it's not the kind of film that I feel like I, could make myself because I don't think that I have that audacity to just say, yes, every single scene is going to be one shot. And, you know, there might be a jump cut in there, but aside from that, this is, this is the plan we're going to execute in this way. And, and I admire that so greatly. It's it's one of the things that makes the film so interesting. So you, you you have this balance, I think, between um, Damien Lewis, who is a really, really strong, like a really strong attribute of the film is his performance. But then you have Kerrigan, who's not going to over, over, um, I guess, overdo it in, in some sort of stylistic way. He's just going to show very plainly what it is. And without judgment. That's one thing I also really respect about this film is Kerrigan never seems to have judgment for any character or any character's decisions. Um, he, you are an observer there, but you are right there with them. You are right there experiencing the things that they are experiencing in those moments. Uh, it's, it's incredible. I mean, at the time, Clean Shaven was the only reference I had for his work. And so I was sort of braced for an uncomfortable, you know, immersive, unpleasant situation. But yeah. the, the the difference between the two is fascinating to me as well, because in mm-hmm. Clean Shaven, 
we have a an expanse. It's set in the countryside. It's it's rural. It's big. Green spends a lot of time in his car listening to the radio, and the radio becomes this presence. And Keen strips that all away, even though mm-hmm. we plunged into New York. It's a, it's an incredibly busy environment, but uh, Kerrigan doesn't have any supportive soundtrack. It's just Keen muttering to himself, and we have to figure out what it is that that he means by everything he says and piece it together slowly. That's where the exposition. That's where the only exposition lies. But he also chose to shoot in unfamiliar, supposedly that was his whole thing. He wanted to look for locations in Manhattan and in New Jersey that did not look like recognizable New York spaces other than Port Authority, yeah. which is a bus terminal, which could be anywhere. Um, right. But Absolutely. he avoids yeah. anything that could ground us. And the only time the camera widens is when there's peril, is when you know, like Keen's running through traffic or, or potentially about to be pounced on by someone and we need to feel how how scared he is, how, how heavy the atmosphere is around him. But the control of this, of the, of the sense that this whole movie, you're waiting for the explosion that never comes. It's, it's a film without catharsis, really. I mean, there's, a, there's <laughs> the, the suggestion of catharsis at the end. Mm-hmm. It's the, the mm-hmm. inverse of that thing David Kep says about how he likes to end his movies on the possibility of happiness for his romantic comedies and things he wants to, he doesn't want to deliver I say this every time on the podcast, it's becoming a touchstone, but uh, he doesn't want to deliver the audience out of the theater thinking, oh, that's going to be great. It's like, no, they got to work on that, but there's a chance. And here it's the same thing. There is the possibility that he might not be trapped in this forever. But then you're left with the lingering questions like, is this how every day ends for him? Is this the thing that happens over and over again? Is this his process of not letting go? Does he choose a happier ending for himself here? And then is he going to do it again tomorrow? And it's just, it's so, oh, it's so horrible. Like it's so horrible to be left in that space at the end. It's a great experience, but it is not an upbeat picture in any way. And it's so hard to, it's so hard to be enthusiastic. Well, not enthusiastic, but it's so hard to get my brain past the idea of cinema as necessary suffering for the audience where in order to empathize with this condition, you have to go through it. And that's exactly what this film is, but it's so compassionate and so powerful that, Mm -hmm. yeah, I do want to force it on people in a really horrible way. (laughs) I do agree that there's so much compassion in the story. And, you know, you mentioned OCD and, you know, this is the early 2000s. So I don't think our culture was in the same kind of conversation about mental health, but were that film to be released now instead of almost 20 years ago, I I do think that the conversation would revolve around mental health and in some ways might, um, that might actually pigeonhole it too much. And I don't know if Kerrigan would be uh, keen on that. Pardon, pardon the pun here. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I I didn't pre-plan the pun at all. Yeah, these Um, things just happen. (laughs) But but what I find so fascinating is that he goes through this entire experience, and you never you never have a true sense as to what his actual objective is. You 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 believe the objective in the beginning is to find the daughter, but it becomes pretty clear within the first within the first third that there are there are more things going on in his life. There are more problems. There there's definitely you know, a history to see a guy sleeping in a ditch. Um, but Kerrigan does all sorts of fun things. Like you see him sleeping in the ditch or laying in a ditch before you see him pull out stacks of cash to pay for a hotel. It's not that he has heaps of cash, but he definitely has enough money to 
somehow get by and seemingly kind of live this life without um, worrying too much about employment. And, and it's the backstory is just never quite filled in. And you spend the entire film trying to fill in like yeah. that's a puzzle to solve. And I love films that have a puzzle to solve in them where you, where you have to, where you really have to apply a bunch of logic and fill in some gaps with some supposed plans of what things may or may not be and sort of hold them all together at the same time, wondering which one, like which block is going to fall out of this thing that you've assembled. And then he'll introduce a new idea and you go, Oh, that is a, that's very telling when, when Keen has sex with the woman in the bathroom, you, you, you realize how reckless and careless this person is and how little regard he has for the well-being of others and and truly is really really self-obsessed yet he seems to show compassion for kira but then you start to question that as well does does he really have compassion for kira does he have compassion for 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 lynn the the mother of kira that's also in the hotel um there there's just so many dynamics of what's going on on you know you see keen break into their hotel room and sort of rifle through their stuff he he's not a good person he doesn't have their best interests in mind probably but maybe he does and what is his intentions with kira and you see him you see him really get super angry when when the mother doesn't come back when she doesn't come back on time and and you almost see a resolve in him then that I'm going to, I'm going to do something that I shouldn't do here. Um, right. Is he you know, punishing her for being a bad parent or is he punishing her for doing the same thing he might've done in that exactly. situation? Right. I the, the, the really horrible undercurrent to the film, the first time I saw it and it, it's remarkable. It's not there in repeat viewings. And maybe that's just because I know how it goes and, and, this isn't that film. But the first time I saw it, I had this horrible nagging feeling that he is about to kill a child to find out what it is like to do that, to be the guy yes. who took his own kid. And yes. in the second viewing, it's gone. It and is. I, it's not in his performance. It's not in his eyes. It's, no. it's all in the cinematography, I think. It's purely mm. the suggestion of what the angle is and when he looms over kids and when he's mm. sort of asserting power with people. The film feels like it's afraid of him. Mm. But Lewis is coming at it from a good place, I think. Like, if he, he doesn't, as a, it, I'd love to talk to him about this particular performance because as an actor, yeah. it doesn't feel like he feels he could do this. That he, right. that he he knows who Keen is, but the movie doesn't, and it treats yeah. him as this unstable force, and that's so fascinating um, to see in the construction of a film. Like to watch a film a second time and realize it is put together in a way to fool me mm -hmm. and pull me closer and make me a little afraid. Mm -hmm. It's just so unlike anything else I'd seen, and it's this sort of it's what you can do with digital technology. It's what you can do with editing. It's what you can do with long takes. It's this perfect movie that could have only been made in this point in, in time technologically. Mm -hmm. And it is such a weird, unique mystery within Kerrigan's filmography as well, because it's so radically different from Clean Shaven, which is, I mean, it's similar in its themes, but it's a straight line and Keen is this unknowable shape this mist this miasma that moves through you while you're watching yeah. it and yeah, then on the other said, side yeah. there's tv 
you know, not that, <laughs> not that the television work is bad. It's just that by nature, no. it's by definition, it's just much more conventional. Yes, yes, I I totally agree. And and clean shaven, I I agree. There there are so many overlaps in the in the themes there. You know, somebody who's falling through the cracks, uh, somebody who's maybe struggling with some some unwellness in in their mind, and mm-hmm. um, you know, dealing with a a loss of some kind, and and the innocence of youth and. You know, I, I can't help but think that Kerrigan might feel like we're letting our kids down. That's that's sort of what I came to on the second viewing, because this is what was my only second viewing that I watched this last week. Oh, wow. Um, with this new Blu-ray, because, you know, the first time I watched the film, I, I had the same experience. It was a roller coaster of perception. I, I never quite knew. I could never quite grasp what was going on. And that is what I loved about it. And I don't, you know... It, it's very hard to criticize someone else's film because when you criticize some, it's almost like criticizing someone's child. It's a really hard and very dangerous thing to do because you don't know the things that someone had to do to get to the point, to make all of those decisions that they made to make this film. So just like you don't know what happens in someone else's home, you don't know the struggles that, that someone is going through. But um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I would say if I had a criticism of the film is that it's it's best impactful as a first viewing and and repeated viewings allow you to see behind the curtain a little bit more like to to see uh, to because now you filled in those gaps and you don't yeah. have to have all the same sort of suspense. So now you now I focus far more on craft and and saw a lot more of the craft and and frankly you know that's how I actually have to watch most films unfortunately. But the first viewing of Keen for me was such a joy because I got lost. I just got completely lost as a viewer in watching this movie. My first experience of it was just so, it, it was like obliterative. I don't know any other way to explain it. It was this mm-hmm. really compelling sense that you were watching the experiment in real time, that it was just assembling itself in front of you. Uh, and then to be spat out the other side of it, to just be outside in the light when it was over and it was, was incredibly jarring. And it's yeah. you know, like, it's what psychodramas are supposed to do. It's supposed to shake you up and throw you out and, and back mm. to yourself. But I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with responding to it purely on emotional terms the first time through. I think that's the intention. Oh, to be, and, and it's to be a, grabbed and shaken. Yeah. It's such a treat for me because I, I find that, like flaws in films almost have to sort of disappear for me to really engage with something. And and that's what I'm constantly looking for is that experience of like really being able to fully engage. And if I continue to be able to make films, this is what I would love to do is I would love to just remove sort of the artifice of the form itself and get straight into, to an experiential thing for a, for a viewer. And it's a, it's a rare thing for me, but um you know, I don't watch films more than once very often. Uh, and so for me to come back to something and watch it a second time, it's, it's pretty rare. There's exceptions. There's things I've watched way too many times, but. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. We've all been there. Um, yeah. Was, was your first viewing in 2004 at the time back when, or did you see it later? No, no, I saw it later. I saw it clean shaven many years ago, probably 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Um, the composer that I often work with is a gentleman named Jim O'Rourke and he's a, he's a absolute cinephile. And he kept telling me, you have to see Keen, you have to see Keen, you have to see Keen. 
And I had this sort of bias against it in part because I know the same name and it's a band that has no appeal to me personally. So I, <laughs> I sort of, for some reason, would always associate it. And then I had a really hard time finding Keen uh, and eventually found it at my local library on DVD. And, uh, you know, kind of watched this smeary, blurry DVD probably five, six years ago, something like that. Oh, okay. And, uh, and was just absolutely floored by it. Yeah. Really, really knocked my socks off. Oh, the Blu-ray must have been a little revelation then, just because it looks like the restoration looks fantastic. The restoration does look really, really good. I found the, the grain a little distracting. I, I couldn't tell where the real grain ended and the fake grain began. But, um, but who knows? Who knows? I'm, I shouldn't speak about these things that I don't know too much about. Yeah. Well, there's, um, there's this whole new movement about what film grain actually is and where it goes. And all I can think of is that if Kerrigan approved it, that's, I'll take it. Right. Like I'll, yes. I, I'll accept it in this case, cause it is a full restoration and careful and one that was very carefully overseen as I understand it. But, um, you need that, right? Like you need the artists involved 20 years later, as long as they don't decide they want to pull things out or change things around. And, and that's already happened with Keen, and we can talk about that separately. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's it's fascinating for me that Steven Soderbergh would take a swipe at uh, re-edit. And I just find that relationship really fascinating, honestly, between the two of them. So um, that's that's a lot of a lot of nerve and it's a lot of trust. Uh, nerve on one party, trust on the other. I don't necessarily don't take nerve as full negative connotation, uh, but maybe slight on my part. Um, not to disparage Mr. Soderbergh. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that their relationship, their working relationship was like Soderbergh is very hands off in his duty as a producer, but he did. Uh, and, and it's, it's on the Blu-ray. You should definitely check it out at some yeah. point, uh, just out of technical curiosity, because it is this fascinating alternate version of the art where mm -hmm. Soderbergh, the way, the way it's um, teed up on the disc, because it was on the DVD as well. Uh, at the time, which was really, really shocking, like the thing immediately surfaced on DVD, which was for a lot of people the first time they'd had the chance to see the film because its release pattern was very small. And here's this second cut. Here's this alternate version by a person whose name carries more weight than yes. likely Kerrigan's for yes. the casual viewer. Um, right. So it's this. But but Soderbergh does this like he he recuts movies in his spare time for fun. Uh, he has a website extension 765 where occasionally he'll just post a bootleg cut of like he recut alien in black and white and called it derelict. He, uh, he took, right. he took Raiders of the Lost Ark down to a black and white version only with score. And it's kind of wonderful. It's That's just right. ways for him, I think, to engage with the craft for, of someone else's mm -hmm. work from a different perspective. He's an absolutely like fascinating polymath of an artist who just plays with things this way. And uh, according to the, the introduction on the disc, he sent this cut to Kerrigan as a possibility, just to think maybe you missed something, maybe this will spur conversation. And what it is, is a chrono, it's an achronological recut. So it's time scrambled in much the same way the Limey is, okay. uh, or out of sight. And that's just like, he was doing that a lot right then. Yeah. And he just played with Keen. And I guess, as you said, it was, couldn't have been an editor's nightmare because they are all long takes and he just moved the sections around. <laughs> but he also cut one scene, which is the scene where Keen goes to visit um, Amy Ryan for the first time and the dance. And so there's no tenderness between them. 
which interesting. is interesting. I think the thing he was trying to suggest is that it might be more interesting if this guy forces himself into their lives rather than insinuates himself. Yeah. And he's not wrong. It is a different, it changes the relationship dramatically, but I can also totally, totally. see why Kerrigan would want to keep it because you totally. need that flicker of humanity from Keen to, to ask us if he's doing it intentionally. Like, is he being drawn to the possibility of a new family or is this his motif? Like, is this what he does? <laughs> you know, if there was one scene that I had to cut in the film, I think that that's probably what I would have wanted. It, the oh, yeah. pace changes, right? There's there's this respite moment in it. There's mm -hmm. this moment of like kind of reprieve, and I don't know that I don't know that it serves the film well. Um, but you're right; it does establish a tenderness between the two characters, and that that's a value and benefit potentially, depending on what you want to do with the film. Yeah. But I think, I think, I don't know. I think the film needs to breathe. I think without it, it would be almost interminable, like not interminable. I think without it, it would be almost excruciatingly intense. And maybe, mm. you know, that maybe that serves it because that's obviously how he feels all the time. But I don't know. Breathing helps. Also, mm. I'm naturally inclined towards, you know, protecting the director's vision. So I suppose it's like, well, yeah. if it's there, it must be there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, I tend to do that myself, but I'm, I'm very interested to hear that the, the one scene that was actually cut is maybe the one that uh, stood out for me as maybe not fitting in. Like it stands out, it sticks out a little bit when you watch it. It does. It's just tonally so different. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the one time too that uh, Lewis isn't hunched. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't crouch. He has this whole predatory, not predatory. He, he has this prey pose, I guess I'd say like he's being mm -hmm. hunted, even though he thinks he's the hunter and he keeps putting himself in positions where he has to be the, you know, the most watchful person, the most prepared, most capable. And he's not, as you said earlier, like, he's clearly not, this is the worst person to be conducting an investigation. Because um, I don't know that that's what he's doing either. Maybe he's just forcing himself to relive the day, or maybe he is trying to spot this person who is almost certainly never going to come back to the scene of the crime. But yeah, it, it, it's definitely avoidant behavior. Like he's definitely avoiding some other aspect of his life that that is not uh, that is not okay, and he's favoring this this story or this mystery or this uh, conundrum that he he's. He's looking at that and focusing purely on that in his life and only that. And because of that, the rest of his life is obviously decayed to this point. And in a relatively short amount of time, I think, I think in the beginning, it says last September. You're not actually told when last September was, but you can kind of infer that this is maybe early spring or sometime in the early winter. So within six months, it seems like his life has basically collapsed. But I kept wondering, like, what? really was the nature of his relationship with his daughter. He's not a good babysitter. We know yeah. that. He walks away from her. He walks away from her as though tempting fate to repeat the thing. And so you you do wonder all that I wondered the whole time, what is his intention? What is he trying to achieve with this? Yeah. And and again, that's that's where the joy in the film comes from. And it's not quite there on second viewings. But um but but what a treat. What a treat. Yeah. On second viewing, it just feels so much sadder. Yes. Yes. Because you're watching someone who can't break the loop. And and again, our foreknowledge of the way it ends is you, you don't have to be worried in the same way. But 
your heart breaks instead, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. such a such a unique structure for a film, mm-hmm. especially a mm-hmm. film that positions itself as a, as kind of on the edge of a thriller and that, that uses the mechanics of a thriller to to pull us in. Right. Right. Yeah. It definitely does. It definitely does. Um, yeah. Thematically, I feel like it it really is about the adults failing the kids. You know, I feel like it's, it's a story of people that fall between the cracks and, you know, the next time you see someone shouting on the street, uh, you should ask yourself what happened to that person. Cause, cause maybe something really happened to that person. And maybe that's, um, you know, there's reasons why people do the things that they do. Um, I don't know. I just heard Chris Hedges. I don't know if you know this person, but he's sort of an intellectual. He's a thinker. He's a writer. I think he's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. He wrote about war a lot. He's a war correspondent. Wars correspondent. Yes, of but course. He's got an interesting. Yeah, he's got really interesting takes on things. And I just heard him talk about uh, what he calls totalitarian capitalism. And you know, I think I think he said something along the lines of totalitarian capitalism means people interpret their problems as their own personal problems instead of identifying them as political or social problems. And I, and I think that that, I, I heard him say that after I watched this film and and I just connected those two things together. And, you know, I think that that's very true that it's, it's easy to look at Keen and say, he's made a whole bunch of bad decisions and he's living in that world. But, we also don't know exactly why he ended up there. He seems to be receiving some sort of government assistance. And I don't know enough about the American system of assistance, but I couldn't help but wonder if he is a, a vet, a war vet of some kind, or, um, you know, if there's, if, and even if it's not that directly tied to institutional um, problems, I think that there's a, there's a larger problem about people just going on about their lives as though uh, no one else exists and, and there are people suffering all around us and we don't, we're not necessarily um, clued into that fact. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, as well as Blue Beetle and Strays, and Arrow's exquisite 4K release of Peter Weir's Witness. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. Certainly, a number of systems have failed this man in, by the time the movie starts, uh, starting with presumably the police or whatever other emergency services yeah. would have been involved in finding his kid yeah. uh, and then treating him afterwards. I hadn't even thought about the veteran possibility, but of course, casting someone who's only known to American audiences for playing a World War II soldier also plays into that possibility. Exactly. Yes. And he was also in Homeland too. I think maybe after the fact. Afterwards, but, yeah. Um, yeah. But again, that would sort of almost typecast Lewis as a as a war vet. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that is something he's been pushing back against in the second half of his career. Because I, I I had seen him in a couple of UK productions. There's a there's a BBC thing called Shakespeare Retold, 
um, mm. where there are modern versions of four Shakespeare plays, or just modernized settings, but stay keeping the language. And he plays Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing. And I want to say it's set in a, oh no, Macbeth was the one that was set in the kitchen, you know, you know, like a restaurant kitchen, but it is just so odd to see him as that person at a point in time where maybe his future as a, an American star hadn't been secured yet. And he's just embracing the Shakespearean aspects of this thing, going a little bit bigger here and a little bit broader there. And, and as opposed to something like this, where he's straightjackets himself physically, as well as emotionally, like he is playing a character with one note, but it's such a powerful note and he finds variations yeah. on it. It's really jarring to see the, like to think about the career he could have had if he hadn't broken in the, in the U S but, mm. um, mm. but no, that hadn't occurred to me, but of course it makes perfect sense. And the, and the larger sense too of New York is the place where you go when you have nothing, right? Like the Port Authority yeah. terminal is, and has been for decades, has been sort of the, the place where the drifters arrive. And then if they don't make it, that's where they go back and they just stay there. And so he's, he's drawn back to it for a completely different reason, but he's also, as yeah, as you pointed out, surrounded by other people who are all in the middle of their own ongoing endless crises. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, did, did it ever occur to you that, uh, I mean, on your first viewing did, or even on subsequent viewings, was it ever a question to you is, did he even have a daughter? Is this, is any of this real? I mean, the first uh -huh. time I watched it, I was, I was really unsure the entirety, if this was even his daughter or if he didn't find a newspaper clipping about someone else and then spins this yarn to himself in much the same way you referenced memento i i'm starting to see more overlap with that as you know ever since you mentioned it um, I, I, is that something that was on your mind i don't know that it ever occurred to me that clearly um his his the sense of someone with an agenda is in there so mm -hmm. i i guess i would I took him at his word because I took the character at his word because Lewis's performance feels so authentic. Like the, the mm. grief feels real. And I don't know that Keen is a good enough actor to fake that based on how we see him with, uh, with, with Lynn, not with Kira, but with the mother, because he's faking it there and we see it. Like you can, you can tell that something's off in those scenes. Like he wants something that he can't articulate. And I think that's where I'm convinced that it's the backstory is true because he wants to use Kira the same way someone used Sophie, someone used his daughter. At least that's yes. the lead that I got. Yes. And I do agree that the character of Keen is not a good enough actor to, to achieve this for some bad reason, but just because someone believes something's true doesn't mean it is true. So I, with that amount of mental health, I, I don't doubt for a second that Keen thinks that everything that he says and does and thinks, um, at least when he's being transparent, is true. But I can't help but wonder if he has his facts straight on any of this. You know, you see him in the hotel at one point reminding himself of all the things. I was born on this day. Right. These were the names of my parents. These are the names of my my. This is my, the name of my brother. This is my story. Basically telling himself his own story. And I don't know many people that do that. 
I mean, I guess I don't know what people do in, in the privacy of their own hotel room, but <laughs> I don't think that reminding yourself of what year and day you were born is, is a very common occurrence. Um, so I can't help but wonder if there's some other aspect. Mind you, I have seen Kerrigan since say that, that he and Lewis always basically assumed that the story was true. Okay. And, and you know, I don't want to diminish someone else's experience in watching this film, but but I think it pretty much closed the door for me on the possibility that uh, that Damien Lewis's character, that he never had a daughter at all. So, I guess the other piece of supporting evidence within the film, although it's circumstantial, is that people leave him alone. Like if he was doing this, if, if this wasn't his first time at Port Authority doing this, the police would be watching for him. Because that's the thing that mm. I believe the system exists to do, is to push the mentally ill away from the normal people, right? The, to, to to create a sense of false security, especially post 9-11, um, where everybody in New York was looking for a threat all the time. Right. He would not have been tolerated if it wasn't real. But that said, he has money. So that changes the calculus yet again. And it's impossible to get a beat on where he's coming from, like, which is the point, obviously, right? There's no backstory. There's no, there's no supporting data for anything. We have to assume that all of this is happening, that he's untouchable because he can take care of himself on some other level or he is taking care of himself on some other level. I don't think it's the situation where this whole thing has been engineered for him to perform this role. But I do get the sense that the people who leave him alone are leaving him alone because they know he has a good reason. Mm. Which also might be what's allowing him to come so close to doing something terrible. Right. And how close do you think he comes to when, I mean, he's clearly going to abduct her. He's, he's, he's at the train station. Oh yeah. He's going. It's happening. Yeah. And I yeah. think, I think this is the process he is putting himself through, but I don't think he ever intends to follow through. I'm like, that's what, that's what I meant about my second viewing where I like, I can see his grief driving him more than anything else. There's no mm. predatory instinct or rage. He's not trying to make someone else. He's not trying to punish. Um, he's not trying to punish Kira to make Lynn feel like a bad mother. Mm. Uh, I don't think he's doing this as some sort of angel reminding parents how important their children are. He, he needs to save her. He need, and just that seems to be not hurting her. Like he needs to be the person who almost loses another kid, but won't let it happen. It's oh, the, it's the wow. sadness. It's the grief that I and see in, in Lewis. That's interesting. And I had not, I had not thought of it in those terms uh, in a similar way, but different. I had seen that perhaps he was reliving the experience, like recreating the experience in order to have a different outcome of some kind. Yeah. Um, there's that too. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think we see that show up in other films too, of like, you know, the idea of a surrogate to, to help someone overcome some sort of moment that they can't get past. And, and there's, there's great examples and then there's horrifying examples and uh, the act of killing the, the, um, that documentary of recreating horrible war crimes is mm. almost this macabre comedy of some kind yeah is, casting yourself as the hero of that story yeah that that was a way to kind of bring about uh the reality to the people that participated in it. and it seemed like 
it was very effective. Uh, the the laughing on my part is not due to any sort of humor, just the absurdity or the no, no, I understand. horrifying. Um, and then another circuit film that jumps to mind is like Alps, the Yorgos Lanthimos uh, film, which I had the strangest reaction to watching that film at, at the end of it. Just this really, really visceral experience of of um, of not feeling all that connected to the film while watching it, but afterwards realizing that that it messed with me on a psychological level that few films ever have, you know. But um, but yeah, this this chance, this opportunity to relive something and have a different outcome, sort of to set the record straight. Maybe maybe that's King's intention the entire time. I I I don't know what his intention is, and that's why I think it's a great film. Is because I I can't answer the question yet. Yeah, there's that. George Carl, I think it was George Carlin's joke about guaranteeing that you don't die in a in a terrorist bombing of a plane by bringing the bomb yourself. Because what are the odds? Like, what are the odds that there'll be two? <laughs> and maybe Keen is trying to be the threat that prevents another threat from happening, right. even though he knows he won't follow through on it, or that he he's tempted. The, yeah, that first viewing, I was convinced he was about to like uh, to. The other film I'm thinking of is The Vanishing, where someone ah. is offered the opportunity to find out what happened to a loved one by going through the process. Yes. And that turns out to be both a terrible mistake, but also the the most disturbing thing about the film is that the person conducting the process is enjoying this more than they enjoyed the first time through. That reliving the experience non-vicariously and doing yeah. it again with the consent of someone instead of an unwilling victim is even yeah. more appealing. And that consent is, you know, it's derived through trickery, but it is still kind of enough. It's like inviting the vampire into your house. And I don't think, I don't think Damien Lewis is playing that role, but I think the film around him, I think Kerrigan is conducting that experiment is like, what if we go the wrong way with this? What if he makes the wrong decision and forcing us as the audience to dread that, but also root for him not to, and be incredibly sympathetic to that, to that knife edge of, of potential disaster from operating from the best possible, of, well, not the best possible reasons, but I think like Keen's reasoning is pure. It's just unreadable to anyone who isn't Keen. <laughs> I, I would love to uh, talk to Mr. Kerrigan about uh, about his intentions when he started writing it, and when and when he knew what the plot was going to be, um, when when he knew the final outcome of the film, if he knew it from the very beginning, or if he was on the edge right up until the edit. Like I, I'd be very curious to know if he had that fully planned out and in mind, or if he, or if he was always allowing himself to sort of vacillate between two two very different outcomes. Uh, yeah, the, um, well, the other project, the, the thing that, that begat Keen, do you know the story that he'd been working on another film that didn't, that, yeah. that didn't, it, it happened. I was going to say that didn't go, but it did. He made, for, for people who don't know, he made another movie called In God's Hands uh, with, with um, Peter, Sarsgaard. And Peter Sarsgaard about yeah. a family yeah. falling apart after a child abduction produced by Soderbergh. Yeah. And then something happened to the negative. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and so he's dealing with his own trauma of a lost uh, uh, product, not a child, yes. obviously, but the, that film was inspired by his fear about losing his own daughter. 
uh, and how easily and how quickly that could happen and how completely irreparable that would that would be to himself and his wife and, and or his partner and whatever else was going on in their lives. Um, to lose a child is to end your own existence. Like who you are is no longer apparent, right? Everything is different and gone. And so he makes a movie about that. And then it is taken from him in a chemical accident. Some, some Something went wrong with the negative that can't be, even now, apparently it can't be restored even with digital. I'm not even sure the, the physical thing still exists. But so he makes this movie about this uh, in a white heat, he writes it wandering around in in, the, in New York in, in this fugue state uh, and improvises things in his head, which then go into the script for Keen. And I, yeah, that story, I, it's a horrible thing to have to revisit, but I really would love to hear about it. There, there's a, the Lincoln Center Q&A is online from last year and it's definitely worth watching, but the, um, the trauma like the artistic trauma, which I know it doesn't compare in any way to a parent losing a child, but it's not not an echo, right? Like it's there. I would never have put that together, but that's quite amazing. When you had Agnieszka Holland on and you were talking about Stalker, did this come up? Uh, well, no, not maybe don't tell me. Oh, it didn't. Because no. I think that Stalker had a, had a similar thing where Tarkovsky shot the film and then came back and uh, there was a lab problem. And so he got to shoot the film a second time. And I always wonder if that, cause that's probably my favorite film of all time. I wonder sometimes if that didn't make it a better film that he had the chance to reshoot it, but I don't know how you'd have the heart to do it. There's also a lot of controversy if there really was a lab problem or if there was some other problem and it's easier to blame it on the lab and you've got Soviet money, which maybe isn't ample, but it's, um, but it's a never ending well, mm-hmm. um, seemingly. So, so yeah, you wonder sort of what, what actually happened there, but I can't bear the thought of reshooting something that's already been shot. I, I don't blame Kerrigan for just walking away and saying, Nope, and brushing his hands and saying, I'm going to work on a different project. That's basically the same film, but, uh, but with the added also, level of me processing the grief and loss. Yes. Uh, solo. Uh, without without a partner right yeah yeah and it's i mean i'd love to i'd love to find out that soderbergh has the you know a digital version a horrible dv distorted version of whatever they had they must have dailies it must be possible i would think so i, I would think it's almost i mean that would have been early 2000s probably right yeah. late 90s yeah. early 2000s. 2001 2002 i think it was very soon someone yeah you would think that there'd be tapes of some kind. Yeah, Keen was made very, very quickly after that. But um, yeah, it's funny. I've, I've interviewed, I've talked to Gyllenhaal and Sarsgaard. It's never come up. I should ask them about it someday, the next chance I get. But this does actually get us to like the final act of, of the final section of the podcast. Um, I, I I don't see it. I mean, I'm loving the fact that the the, the more of these episodes I do, the final question seems to become increasingly irrelevant, which is, is there something from this film that you've borrowed or, or referenced or homaged or outright stolen in your own work? And as they go on the episode, as the, as the episodes pile up, people are, I think, forced to make different decisions and stuff isn't available. And, and you end up with, with a thing that's completely removed from your own art. I don't see an echo of keen in hands that bind. It's such a, a different experience, but there is, by the same token, there is this ambiguity 
lurking in mm-hmm. the film about what's really going on and why. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So is that a, is that a deliberate thing from Kerrigan's influence, or is that something that you've always enjoyed as a creator? Like, is there a connection between Keen and your new film? I don't. I don't feel like um, there's any direct connection in terms of inspiration. Uh, but maybe in terms of the types of films that I'm most interested in. And, mm-hmm. and ambiguity is is definitely, I think, the thing that would tie these two films together is I, I truly do not, um, I like to ask questions and I don't always feel like it's necessary to answer them. And I like to leave viewers with puzzles. I like to not, um, if people walk away from watching something I've made and they feel like, oh, that was great. And now I have nothing to think about and I'm going to go home and make macaroni and cheese or whatever their decision might be on that day. That, that doesn't, I feel like I haven't done my job. I feel like I need to send people away with something to mull over and tumble in their mind. And if, and if I can give them an extra hour of kind of enjoyment out of that experience, then, then I'm, very very happy of course there's plenty of people that will absolutely not enjoy that experience because some people really need that um definitive closure absolute facts complete answers um no ambiguity in the end uh, even my wife is probably like that she she really favors that kind of experience and and i love i love the mystery i love unpacking i love all the all the lynch mysteries that he's created and all all that um type of experience because I feel like that is so much more tied to how I think about art. If we can talk about film as art, which I think we can, of course, um, it's, it's so much more uh, compelling to me to give the gift of having to try to figure something out on your own to interpretation. And, you know, I, I think that there's ways that, one can see a film that has ambiguity and i think that there's a lot of ways that people probably see hands of mind and i i'm all in favor of that personal interpretation i know what it is that i made myself but i am not opposed to people walking away and drawing different conclusions it's been really fascinating uh listening to people's responses when they see the film because you know sometimes they're hypothesizing things that of course i've thought about or you know, occurred to me might might occur to someone else, but occasionally somebody comes forward with some pretty pretty strange sort of uh, interpretation as to what the film is getting at, or some particular plot point that they get hung up on, and and I just I love it. I I feel like that is welcome, and uh, I I just encourage people to draw your own conclusions. Yeah, I like the sense that a film has given me room to interpret, right? Like there, for the same way, I believe that Kerrigan has the answers on, on Keen as well. Like there, there is a version of the truth or there is an absolute truth. We're just not allowed to glimpse it. Um, and you can, you bring it necessarily, you bring your own baggage to this story. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I can't connect to it on that level. Um, but it doesn't mean I can pretend to objectivity about the emotional stakes about, you know, you're still, I'm still pulled in by what I'm pulled in by and responding to what I respond to. Yeah. 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 Um, there's not necessarily a direct connection between the two. Uh, one of the interesting fact is that Paul Sparks, who plays the lead and has the fun, he was in, uh, 
the Girlfriend Experience, which was Kerrigan's first, I think it was his first foray. It was it was the first season, anyways, of, of the Girlfriend Experience. And oh, that's right, yeah. Paul had great things to say about Lodge Kerrigan and just really appreciated so many of the things, right down to the fact that there aren't trailers on set that you retreat to. You are you are there with everyone and that they're using available light. And I, I really appreciate and love all those those stylistic choices. Very rare in television to to favor natural light that much. Um, but I, I think he really does. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it's just because post now gives you the chance to equalize things in a way that it couldn't before the digital tools. I'm always fascinated by the the way things change and the way they don't when new technology mm. comes in, where people will favor the thing they like. Uh, mm -hmm. and find reasons to devalue the new tech or use the new tech to make something feel like it used to feel, you know, in, sure. in, in grading, like the, like the digital film restorations that involve adding or, or balancing grain right. to make it look like right. it used to. Yeah. And it brings up philosophical questions about when does a film, when is a film complete and what is the film? Like, what is the complete film? Is it the print or is it the cut negative? Which Which one is it? And that might sound like, you know, it's a philosophical question. It really is. And sometimes you see a film that you're so used to seeing on VHS or DVD or some really low res file. And then you see the actual thing and you feel a little bit disappointed. Like you kind of preferred it when it was a something that you taped off TV in the mid nineties. And you kind of like that look, you know, I think about Ken Russell's Savage Messiah and how I saw that in the, mid 90s probably mm -hmm. and recorded it onto vhs and watched it so many times and i think if i went to see a print uh or a dcp of it i, I don't know that i would enjoy it as much honestly yeah so. i just introduced last night i introduced a 35 millimeter print of the hidden um mm. which i had seen in a truly crappy screening room in 1987 um, and then subsequently never again in the theater, just, you know, on various iterations, I think like VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, maybe even a laser disc in there at some point. Uh, and this looked just yellowy gross. It was great. It, mm. it, it was exactly what it should have looked like beat up and ugly and B movie ish. But the opening shots were so just because that's the beginning of the print, right? So there's a little more scoring and a little more damage. We're just so beat up that it looked unlike I'd ever I, in my brain. It's like, I've never seen it look this bad. And it's like, of course I haven't, because I've seen various video sources and better quality. You know, like I think the Blu-ray is from a 2K restoration, but it looks great. And okay. this is just like, oh, this looks like it's greasy and smeared with cocaine from Los Angeles streets in 1987. <laughs> it's perfect. It's exactly what I wanted the audience to experience. But it's so jarring to revisit something that you've only seen um, in a like through a medium, through a storage medium, as opposed to on celluloid again. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's glorious. Yeah, and I, I value so much that personal experience of, of for myself, but also for an audience of of like interpretation or the experience of it. And, and sometimes you'll like, I've watched films where I hated them the first time I saw them. And then the second time I see them, I love them. And I've had it where I, I love them for the same reasons that I hated them the first time I watched it. And all it's done for me is just open up that door of, of, of being able to say, 
it comes down to probably how I feel on that particular day, how I'm going to feel about this film, at least to varying degrees, and how kind of glorious that is. Because I think that as an audience member, you you have that right. You have that right to have your own opinion on, on what it is and to have your own experience. We don't watch these things in a vacuum. We watch them with other people. We're alone, but we're situated in the midst of a day, in the midst of a week, in the midst of a life, in the midst of a room. And the situation of that experience always colors the experience itself. And to deny that and to deny, to deny the audience of that, and this is one of the problems made with some film criticism, is that you it's it's trying to remove that from the audience's experience. And I can appreciate it as a creator because you want people to have their purest experience of cinema possible. But you got to remember that these are humans and, you know, maybe their stomach's upset that day or or maybe they had too much coffee and they have to go to the washroom three times while they're watching the movie or whatever the thing might be. And that's okay. That's okay for things to be messy and cluttered and different than what you think the ideal is. Uh, And that's why it's great to be a a filmmaker, but also an audience member as you, you get to remind yourself of what of what it actually means to watch something. My thanks to Kyle Armstrong, whose new film, Hands That Bind, is now playing in theaters and available on digital in the U.S. and Canada. Thanks also to Bonnie Smith. She knows what she did. You can follow Kyle on Instagram at handsthatbind, all one word, and you can find the new restoration of Keen in a special edition Blu-ray from Grasshopper Film and streaming on the Criterion channel. It's also available to rent and buy on various VOD services. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.